I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Um, We've been looking for a couple of weeks in the summer, then last week, and then then this week, four weeks looking at four servant songs. These are four uh, passages written by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before uh, Jesus' incarnation, his ministry, and his death, as we're going to be reading about today. And these passages all speak in incredible detail about the events of Jesus' life. And as I said, this passage this morning uh, speaks about the events of Jesus' crucifixion, his death. So I'm going to read this passage to us. I'm going to start at chapter uh, 52, verse 13. And as I read it, I want you to keep in mind that this is talking about Christ and see if you can uh, identify uh, what it's saying about him and about his crucifixion. Let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All like we, all, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. I wonder what you think when you read that passage. Well, I want to start by just telling you a short story that really, I think, gives us a, just a glimpse of the life-changing uh, power of the verses that we've just read. There's a famous story about a man who was a, a finance minister, an important man in his own country, who'd um, been away from his own country but was travelling back uh, to his homeland. And somehow he'd got hold of this text. He was reading it, but he was confused. He was wondering, who is this speaking about? In God's providence, there was a a Christian evangelist who'd who'd felt something of the prompting of the Lord to go to be at a certain place so that he would meet this finance minister on the road. And uh, as he heard the finance minister reading it aloud, uh, he asked him, do you understand who it's speaking about? And the minister asked him to explain it to him. And he he told him about how it was written by Isaiah 700 years uh, previously. But it was describing the person of Christ and his death. And he then went on to explain the gospel and all about the person of Christ uh, to this man. And this minister was convinced. Uh, He made a decision right there and then to follow Christ uh, when he understood who it was speaking about. And he asked him to be baptized. His whole life was changed. The trajectory of his life was changed completely in that moment when he understood these verses. 
You can uh, find that story in the book of Acts in chapter 8 that describes the Ethiopian eunuch, the man who's in charge of the treasury of uh, Queen Candice. And, uh, and, and he has an encounter with the evangelist Philip uh, mere weeks after Christ's death, after the events that these verses describe. And what I really want to say to you is that in a sense these verses, you want to see the explosive impact of these verses the way that lives are changed as they read these. The one, uh, one author described these as the capstone of all Old Testament prophecies. This is the most quoted passage in the New Testament. In fact, I would go as far as to say it's absolutely fundamental to how the New Testament writers understand the events of Christ's crucifixion. So it's absolutely essential that we understand these verses. And really, when I read these passages, the thing that absolutely stands out to me is the way they are remarkable for their predictive power. Remember, they're written hundreds of years before the events they describe, and yet they describe in incredible detail Christ's crucifixion and the events around it. In verse 14, it describes how um, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. And of course, we know that as Christ was on the cross, he would have been... um, You would have seen a marred man, a a bloody appearance with a crown of thorns lacerating his face, perhaps his uh, face bloody from the way his beard had been ripped out. You would have seen a marred man on the cross. Describes the method of his death. In verse 5, it describes how he was pierced for our transgressions. Describing the crucifixion, how the the nails or the the bolts would have gone through his wrists and through his ankles uh, to pierce him to the cross. Of course, by the way, Isaiah's writing here before the crucifixion is really popular as a method of torture and death. Describes how the manner of his death and the fact that he'd be buried with a rich man. In verse 9, he describes, uh, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. They would have expected to bury him with the wicked, just to toss his body aside after he died on the cross. And yet Joseph Arimathea is a rich man. He asked to take the, bury, uh, the body and bury it in his family tomb. We know he's a rich man because only a, man who had a, uh, only a rich man would have a family tomb like that. Describes his faultless character. Said although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And of course the Gospels testify to Christ's character. It even hints at the resurrection. In verse 10, it says he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. Now, when he says he he shall um, put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he's describing, he's talking about his death. Wait a second, if you read it, you say, how does it say that when he dies, he will see his offspring? He will prolong his days. Well, the only way you can make sense of that juxtaposition that a man can die and yet still see his offspring and continue living is the resurrection. When you take these um, different elements of the passage and there are more and there are more prophecies beyond this passage, the idea that the uh, gospel writers could have written their accounts in order to uh, match up with this passage is just ridiculous. In fact, one um, writer um, said, never was there a prophecy more gloriously plain. It's absolutely obvious this is talking about Christ. And in fact, the idea of the disciples writing accounts of his life to fit this passage is so complex as to be impossible. There's no way they would have been able to write and get all the details in. This is, you've got to see the predictive power. And really behind that predictive power, you've got to see the fact that Really, behind all the different voices, all the different writers, the human writers of the different books of the Bible, separated by um, thousands of miles and hundreds of years, there is one voice behind all those different authors. This is one of the reasons that gives me a conviction that the Bible can be trusted, that the Bible is the word of God. Because behind all those human authors, we see one author weaving one story, the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking and inspiring those writers. So it's remarkable for its predictive power. But yet, as we read this passage, you'll see that it's, it's very easy to overlook the events that are described. In verse 2 and 3 of chapter 53, he said, For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no formal majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He's comparing him to like a young plant. Think about it. you're in a rural setting. You go and you see, you'll see thousands of young plants, small shrubs. There's nothing remarkable about him. He's saying there's nothing uh, remarkable about the person of Christ and his physical uh, being that would have drawn us to him. It would be easy to overlook the events of the cross. Of course, we know that Christ was not the conquering king that the Jewish people were expecting. No, he came very, in a very different posture, a posture of a servant. And so it's very easy to imagine why then at that time many people dismissed him, they ignored him, the crowds followed him and then they rejected him. 
It says he was despised and rejected by men. It's almost a sense of he was dismissed. He was ignored. He was scorned by many. Many didn't give him second thought. So it's, it's easy to overlook him then. It's easy, easy to overlook these events now. Maybe if you're just a student of history, you say, well, I know that there are many different uh, Jewish messianic uh, claimants, so to speak, those who would try to lead the Jewish people in uh, revolt against the Roman Empire, and all failed. Isn't this man just another example of a failed Jewish messianic uh, leaders trying to revolt against the Romans? Even the crucifixion, we think of it as an incredible act of uh, cruelty and, and, and punishment, and it is. But in one sense, there's nothing remarkable about it. Many people died by the crucifixion. uh, In the days of Spartacus' rebellion against uh, the Romans, 6,000 of his followers were crucified in one day. They were lined up on a road of 120 miles. In one sense, we say there's not anything specifically remarkable about the physical act of crucifixion. Even as a Christian, I think it's easy to overlook these events, to think the cross is vaguely important, but to lack any sense of delight when you look at the cross. We sing about it Sunday after Sunday, and there's a, ch- there's a sense to which familiarity breeds contempt, that it just feels a bit old hat to us. It doesn't really delight us. I want to say that's exactly the opposite response you should have when you read this passage. We cannot overlook the cross. We cannot ignore it. If you're not a Christian, I want you to know, I want to show you this morning that the cross is the great answer to the greatest problem of human history, of human civilization. The great um, gap, gulf between humanity and God. It's the, it's the answer, it's the antidote to the human suffering brought about uh, the uh, human evil that we see all around the world. It speaks to the reality of human guilt. And actually, as a Christian, I think it'd be a danger here that we, there's a danger we can have a kind of crossless Christianity. And there's a couple of different forms of this. One is on the, on the left, the more liberal side of the church, that you might see um, those who deny, whether you call them the church is a separate matter, but whether you deny those who deny the power of the cross, who maybe this just feels very brutal to our kind of Western sensibilities. And so maybe just all they, they kind of reduce the cross as just an example of um, a great man of history, a kind of moment of, of entering into the reality of human suffering and when they do that they divorce it from its central purpose they rob it of its power to deal with the greatest problem facing humanity so in one sense you can those who deny the power of the cross there's another sense that those uh, more conservative convictions who might believe in the power of the cross but it doesn't shape their behavior a kind of crossless Christianity, you can see it where, which becomes triumphantist almost, of, of proud, of aggressive, um, has lost any sense of the Christ-like humility that we see on the cross that, that fails to resemble the Christ of the cross. And so I want to uh, challenge you this morning as we look at the cross again to see the purpose of the cross and to see the challenge to embody Christ's sacrificial love, his posture on the cross. I really, in a sense, want to imprint the cross on your heart this morning to see that it's the power for the Christian life, the basis for the transformation at the heart of the Christian faith. And it should fundamentally shape how we live. There's a great danger that you become apathetic to the cross, that you almost uh, underrate it, that you fail to see the significance of what Christ has achieved. You fail to see the beauty of Christ's work. This should make our hearts sing. So I want to give you three reasons why we can't overlook the cross. I want to show you the purpose of the cross, the beauty of the cross, and the victory of the cross. First of all, don't overlook the purpose of the cross. You must let it transform you. There's a danger when you read this passage, to the untrained eye, this just feels like an act of senseless violence, that Christ suffers a kind of gruesome and bloody death on the cross, and you focus on the physical suffering, and you fail to see the central purpose that Christ is taking on himself, the wrath of God. So there's a great paradox of the heart of the cross that this, many of us know that the cross is brought about because of God's love. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die on the cross. And we see it as a moment of love. But what we fail to see is that this is also a moment where we are confronted by the reality of God's wrath, of God's judgment on humanity. Notice that it's actually God who is punishing Christ on the cross. In verse 10, it says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 
See, what you're saying is when you look at the events leading up to the crucifixion, you see the chief priests uh, angry with Jesus. You see the, the crowds baying for blood. You see the Roman authorities um, kind of wary of trouble. But behind all those human actors, you see that actually God is the one who's orchestrated it all that Christ would be crucified. You've got to hear the strength of the words in verse 10 when he says crush him. It's speaking of a kind of pulverizing him, to put him to dust, to kill him. It may look like it's man's judgment. And of course, Jesus is accused of blasphemy, being a criminal. But actually, you've got to see is that on the cross, Christ experiences the judgment of God. The cross is the moment of the rupturing of the Trinity, where the Father and the Son, where Christ cries, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You hear the anguish in that cry when he cries that from the cross. It's it's an anguish perhaps of the physical pain of the cross, but I think primarily it's the anguish of separation from the Father, that he is experiencing then the wrath and the judgment that humanity deserves for the reality of sin. He's experiencing a moment of separation from the Father. Christ is experiencing the sin of the world laid on him. The judgment that every human being deserves. It's a moment of sacrifice on our behalf. What you've got to see is that the Christ's death is substitutionary. He is a substitute for every human being on the cross. There's a great irony of the cross that the only man who ever lived and is completely innocent, who is deserving of no judgment, is the man who's experiencing judgment. Remember verse 9, there is no deceit in his mouth. He's completely innocent, yet he experiences the judgment that, and the death that every human being deserves. You've got to see all the way through this passage, the writer is really clear that it is our sin that is the responsible for Christ's death. It's the basis for his death. Verse 4, he said, he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. He's pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's no escaping responsibility here. It's all people are involved in the cross. It says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You may, if you go to Munich, uh, you go to one of the art galleries there, you'll see Rembrandt's, uh, uh, the painter Rembrandt's uh, painting of the, uh, called Raising of the Cross. And you can go and look, on, look at it online. It captures something of the brutality of the cross. But amongst the crowd in that scene, as they raise the cross, you see a, a painter's beret. And it doesn't fit with the rest of the scene because that doesn't fit with a a kind of scene of of ancient Middle Eastern context. And the reason that Rembrandt paints that berry there is because he's saying it's a self-portrait. He's putting himself with the crowd because he's saying, I am part of the reason that Christ is on the cross. All of us are part of the story. Christ is there because of us. He's dying for us. To understand the cross properly, you've got to paint yourself in the picture You've got to realize that the judgment that Christ is experiencing is the same judgment that you deserve. It's precisely because of this that the cross has universal relevance. It's not just some historical event. It's an event that speaks to every human being throughout human history. I think it's right that we can call this the great event of human history. The problem is when we hear this idea of the wrath and the judgment of God, it bristles with us. There's something of the offense of the cross. It challenges our pride. We say, who am I to deserve judgment from God? How, how can you say I'm under the wrath of God, that I deserve the punishment that Christ experiences on the cross? As well as a kind of human pride, but there's also just a sense of how can you possibly say this is a, a good God who would judge humanity like this? It doesn't seem to fit with the Christian idea of a God of love. And for me, you might say, if that's what God is like, I don't want to worship him. It's essential that we understand that actually this fits entirely with the character of God. First of all, we underestimate the problem of sin. You need to see it for the offence that it is. It's not some trifling indiscretion. It's a deep sickness at the heart of humankind. It's a universal problem. One writer called it the human potential to F things up. It's the reason we see a, a ravaged and broken humanity. As we survey the world, we see uh, political megalomaniacs. Uh, we see uh, death and suffering and conflict. We see it at the macro scale, we see it at the micro scale, we see it behind broken marriages, behind abused children, behind pride and anger and fundamental disorder at the heart of every human being. It's not just a a slight mistake, it's a fundamental rebellion against the living God, a deep rupture with God's intention for each of us. 
were intended to, me- to be made to live in faithful obedience, to worship God and enjoy him forever. And yet we, we, we reject him. We kind of put two fingers up towards him, so to speak. And we live without reference to the central reality of the universe. If we take a moment, actually, I think we'll look in our own hearts. We'll see it. We'll see it with the reality of our conscience, that, that nagging sense of regret, the sense of the people we've hurt, the, the sense of guilt that we can't quite uh, wash clean from, uh, the sense of just wanting to be able to rewind and do it again. Or just as we look around the world, we, many of us feel a hopelessness about humanity. Why? Because actually the problem with humanity is intrinsic. The problem of sin is, the, is behind so much of what causes us to have a lack of hope for the world. The problem is the evil that we see in the world is not just out there, it's in each one of us. And that means that this this problem of sin is is the cause of the great offence. It's why we are deserving of the judgment of God. But you say, well, why judgment? I want to say this wrath that you see on the cross is entirely consistent with God's character. Just think for a moment, a God without judgment, a God without wrath, is actually a God without love. Think about... uh, A God who sees the evil of the world and shrugs his shoulders actually has no love in God. Actually, when God looks in the world and he sees injustice, abuse, hatred and lying, he sees the way that his image is destroyed. The only right response is anger. And I'm not talking about a kind of emotional flying off the handle. I'm talking about a settled, determined opposition to evil. It's the only right response to evil. It's not apathy. It's it's opposition. It's anger. Think of the father who sees his daughter experience some incalculable evil, like some rape or something like that. Actually, anger, when a, when a father would see something like that, I think anger is the only loving thing. Actually, his anger and his love, God's anger and God's love cannot be separated. They're the same thing. See, I would just argue that when we look at the cross, we have to see the essential need for justice. When we see a broken and ravaged world and we long for a restoration, we long that everything would be set right, that we would live in a just and right world, then we see that we need justice. And I think, there, I think the argument I would make is that there cannot be peace without justice. There cannot be a, a peace and a right, everything to be set right unless there is a moment of justice and reckoning. And this, of course, points to the fact that there will be a moment of justice and reckoning when Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead. There can be no peace without justice. You see this, um, I was reading a, a history of Africa, and just, uh, looking at the uh, history of apartheid in, in South Africa. And um, in, in the early, in mid-90s or after apartheid, uh, Mandela and Desmond Tutu set up something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And it looked into the uh, kind of the evil of, of, of what happened under apartheid government. Actually, it also looked into what, uh, the, what had been done by the ANC, by the Re- Revolutionary Movement. And what was fascinating is both, uh, both sides, so to speak, the, the previous, those who'd been involved in the apartheid government and some in the ANC resisted this uh, commission as it sought to examine the ills of the past. But they said, no, let's just wipe, wipe the slate clean, let bygones be bygones. But interesting, both the, the, those who were behind the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission said, no, we have to, there has to be a moment of reckoning. We have to see what has gone on. We have to, in one sense, be, just bring things into the light Have a moment of justice before there can be peace, before we can move forward. There must be justice to have peace. Actually, God's anger and wrath is the only thing that makes sense of a broken world. When you see the evil, you think there's some cry in each one of us that says justice must be done. When James says this, Behold the wages of the labourers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. When we consider the injustice and evil in our world, actually, in a sense, we say, come, Lord, come and bring judgment. Come and set everything right. There must be judgment. And so when we look at this reality, we're saying we see that judgment on the cross. But of course, we know that judgment would bring a separation from humanity. God wants to be with his people. He wants his people to worship him. He wants to restore his people to the, to the, the glory, so to speak, that they are intended to carry. And so he cannot be separated, so he sends Christ on the cross. Christ undergoes the wrath of God so that we might be reconciled to God. See this moment as the great event of all human history when humanity is reconciled to God by Christ's blood. All those who believe in Christ are given an opportunity to come in and be reconciled to the living God. 
Of course, this, you can see the significance as you see the, the build-up to this moment. It's all the way through the Bible. You see it in Abraham and Isaac when God provides a lamb so that Isaac isn't sacrificed. On the Mount Moriah, by the way, the same place as Jerusalem. You see it in the, in the Passover meal as, Christ, as there's a Passover lamb so that the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost so that it will be, they will be covered by the blood so that the angel of death will not visit the people of Israel. You see it in the sacrificial offerings in the temple, the goats and the sheep all the time building up, saying there must be justice, there must be a judgment, and then so in order to be right with God, in order to be reconciled to him. And it's all pointing up to this moment when Christ will be that sacrificial lamb. And when you understand this, you, I want to argue that the, the knowledge of the cross should transform believers. First of all, it, it, we need to recognise the peace that Christ has brought us. In, in verse 5 it says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The word peace doesn't almost do justice to the reality of the great reconciliation that we have with God because of Christ's acts. Behind that peace is the confidence of sonship, the confidence that you are seated with Christ in heavenly realms. The confidence, the thing, what, I'm, what I want to argue to you is that to have a relationship with God is a fundamentally different relationship than any other in your life. Almost all other relationships are in some sense performance-based you have a work relationship, your employer is going to evaluate you, and if you're not up to the mark, eventually they'll end that relationship. Friendships, in some sense, we often see their performance based. Even romantic relationships. I think about the wife who gets up in the morning early and puts her makeup on in order that her husband will approve of her. Of course, we all know, we hear of stories of people who are breaking up because they don't meet each other's standards. There's a performance basis in many human relationships. And yet I want to suggest that the relationship we have with Christ is fundamentally not performance-based because Christ has done it all. On the cross he said, it is finished. There's an assurance there. It means a confidence that as you come to God, whatever the state of your life in one sense, whatever the, your spiritual state, whether you've messed up five minutes ago, whether you've um, ignored him for the last week, you come into the presence of God with the confidence of sonship, with the confidence that you have been adopted by the living God, that there is peace, not because of what you've done, but because of what Christ did on the cross. Second of all, he describes healing. In verse uh, 5, I think it is, it says, And with his wounds we are healed. With his wounds we are healed. Just think for a moment, Christ's wounds on his back the bloody welts, the, the lacerated scourge, the, uh, the, the lacerations which have been formed by the scourge on his back, as the blood would have been in those wounds. It's by those wounds that we are healed. The cross is a place of healing. What do we mean by healing? Well, I think we mean restoration, a restoration of, our, of, the, of who we're meant to be. I mean, it's, it's, it's a healing is a, a sense of a, a removal of sin, that our sin has been laid on Christ it means that sin is no longer on you. Sin that you've done, but also sin that has been done to you. That sin has been transferred to Christ. It means you are fundamentally being transformed into a new person. It's talking about the healing and restoration of your nature. The old man is gone. He's been crucified with Christ. You are now a new creation. Sin is no longer your identity. Sin is no longer your master. You're no longer controlled by sin. You have found a new freedom. It's so easy, brothers and sisters, when you're walking through life to feel like you can't avoid sin and it's controlling you. The cross says that's not true. The cross says you have a new identity in Christ and that you are in the process of being healed, being restored. One sister might say you have been restored because of the cross. It means you're redeemed, clean saints, washed clean by the blood of Christ, not dirty sinners. See that in, in the New Testament, almost always the New Testament describes you as saints, not sinners. It's a statement of righteousness from Christ that cannot be taken away. It's the end to the endless pursuit in every human being of wanting to justify ourselves, wanting to prove ourselves, to establish our worth through our accomplishments, through our, what other people think of us, through our relationships, to find someone who tells us that we're worth something. No, it says, no, Christ has established your righteousness. He's established your justification. There's no need to look elsewhere. So see that this is the great event of human history. See the global, universal consequences of Christ's work on the cross. He's offering to all men the reconciliation with God that they so dearly need. But also allow the cross to loom large in your life. Work the reality of that peace 
that you have with God, that adoption that you've received from the Father, the privilege of sonship, work that reality into your heart. When you feel condemned, remind yourself that Christ's blood has done it all, that it is finished. There's nothing more for you to do. You are welcome in the presence of God. So let the cross, let the reality of the purpose of cross transform you. Second of all, don't overlook the beauty of the cross. And actually, don't just overlook the beauty of the cross, embody that beauty. This is not just the means of transformation. We have to see Christ's example in the cross. We have to see the beauty of what Christ does. See the beauty of Christ. See his obedience. Since the lamb, you see how the lamb embraces his fate. He sets his face towards the cross. He says, not my will, but your will be done. In verse 7, let, um, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silence. So he opened not his mouth. Christ walks humbly and obediently towards the cross. See the beauty of his humility, the willingness to accept a punishment, to be humiliated as a common criminal, to accept the charge of the false accusation of blasphemy. Think this is Christ, the son of God. And yet he's being accused of blasphemy, of desecrating his own name. Think about how you react when you're falsely accused, how some of us react even when we're kind of Accused in truth, when someone says something true about us, how quick we are to defend ourselves. And yet Christ is willing to take such slander against his name on the cross. See the beauty of Christ's forgiveness on the cross when he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. As they shout at him, as they jeer at him, as they mock him, as they say, he who saved others, let him save himself. No, Christ forgives them as he's in excruciating pain. See the beauty of his strategy. He doesn't force his enemies into submission as he has every right to do. Instead, he takes the punishment. He surrenders his life so that they might have their hearts changed, that he woos us into submission. See the beauty of his strategy. But behind all of this, I think the most beautiful thing, if I can say that, about the cross is Christ's sacrificial love. You must see the cross as a moment of profound Obedience to the Father and sacrificial love. The love that drives the Father to surrender his Son. It says in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The love that drove his Son to pay the ultimate cost with his life. It says Christ, in Ephesians 5, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See Christ's sacrificial love. See the beauty of his love on the cross. And saints, I want to challenge you and say Christians are called to embody this same beautiful, beautiful sacrificial love in every part of our lives. See, Christ is not just our sacrifice. He's also our example. In 1 Peter, uh, Peter is instructing the Christians to be able to endure suffering um, against unjust authorities. But he says, and, and then he gives them the why. And he says this, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes Isaiah, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. What he said, what Peter's pointing to is the fact that Christ is our model, that the same beautiful sacrificial love that we see on the cross is intended to be the dominating ethic of our lives. Remember that Christians are being conformed to the image of his son, the image of Christ, becoming like him. And I think we see, as we look at the story of the early church, how this sacrificial love becomes the dominating ethic of the New Testament community. It's what makes the church such a distinctive community. It's not simply just kind of fellow believers, like people who sign up to the same thing. No, they've become a family. They have responsibility to one another. They, they, in fact, their, their love for one another is such that one of the accusations leveled at the early Christians is that they are an incestuous cult. They say, there's something very bizarre about these people. The love that they have for one another, it doesn't make sense. And it's not just the love they have for one another. One of the early, another early complaint about the church is how they serve and love others beyond their own community. Uh, the Emperor Julian, who was uh, against Christianity, uh, writes a letter where he's complaining about these impious Galileans who care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. This love has shaped them, has become the defining ethic of this new community. Why? Because they're shaped after their great, loving, sacrificial, suffering servant, Christ. 
can see this embodied in Paul's letters all over the place. You can see his love for the people he's writing for. He says uh, to the Thessalonian Christians, he says, although we could have been a burden as Christ apostles, instead we were gentle among you. As a nurse, as a nursing mother nurtures her own children, we cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become dear to us. He's not some professor in a high tower writing academic treaties on how they need to follow Christ. No, he's like a mother to them. For you remember our labour and our hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day that we would not be a burden to any of you. He's so, he cares for you, he's willing to work night and day so he's not a burden to the new community. And then he writes, as you know, like a father of his own children, we encouraged, comforted and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Like a parent tirelessly working hour after hour for the children he loves. He calls Timothy, he's my true child in the faith. He's willing to go through great hardships, imprisonment and beating so that new communities would hear the gospel, that he would be an encouragement, willing to risk his life on so many occasions because he loves the church that he's willing to lay down his life for. It's the same sacrificial love that is the authenticating mark of the Christian. In 1 John 3, John writes, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. He's saying the way you will know that you have really understood the gospel is whether or not you love others. Has Christ's sacrificial love not only um, penetrated your heart such that you experience gratitude to God, but has it changed your fundamental orientation that you would go out and embody the same posture of Christ walking in sacrificial love to the people around you? says if you if you don't if your life doesn't have any sign of sacrificial love in it if you don't really embody this posture my question would be have you really understood Christ's sacrifice for you what does this mean what is this well I think it starts with a kind of profound othered centeredness it's more than mere sentiment there's got to be action you see that Christ poured himself out he gave of himself it's a willingness to sacrifice for others a willingness to put others interests before yourself I mean, the real challenge here is that we are, as a, as a nation, as a, as a generation, fundamentally self-obsessed. We're consumed with our own consumption. We're focused on our own lives. Our eyes and ears are closed to the needs around us. And yet Christ's love is fundamentally in the opposite orientation. It's, it's inherently sacrificial. It cannot be mere words. It means to fundamentally reorder your priorities outside or beyond your own welfare. To take seriously your responsibility to others. And I think it starts with your heart. It starts with allowing Christ's sacrificial love to change the way you see the people around you, to see your brothers and sisters in church, to see your neighbours, to see the people you work with, to take on something of Christ's sacrificial love and his compassion. Think about when Christ looked on the crowds and he said, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The first step here is to ask God to change your heart for the people around you. It means a practical love for the church. It means it changes the way we relate together as a community. We're not just all kind of receivers of God's grace and just kind of in our own little individualistic bubbles. No, we're a family. And that means we have responsibilities to one another. Think about what John says in 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and truth. This means to love your brothers and sisters more more than just enjoying community. That is a wonderful thing. We are so grateful for it. But it means actually being interested in the interests of others. Being willing to find ways of serving and loving your brothers and sisters. Thinking, maybe without even being asked, just thinking, how can I bless them? How can I help them? Think about this time we're in, this season of kind of prolonged semi-lockdown. Maybe we won't be able to, you know, all sort, whatever. We don't know what the future exactly looks like. But I think what will sustain us through this season is, a, is, a, is this same posture of love for one another. I think it's what's kept us together so far. And it's what will sustain us going forward. It's more than just the path of least resistance. It's about looking for ways, looking for opportunities to bless and serve your brothers and sisters. It means taking that same posture of Christ's love to our neighbours, of taking his compassion 
and thinking, how can I serve the people around me? How can I be a blessing to my work colleagues? How can I be a blessing to the people who literally live next door to me? The real danger, I think, is actually that of kind of an introverted community where we have a profound sense of Christ's love between us, but we don't allow that love to go outside the walls of the, the church, so to speak. It says, you have become a source of peace and healing in the world, just as Christ's cross is the great source of peace and healing so we too embody his peace we invite others to come and experience peace with God and restoration into who they were meant to be what an absolute privilege that alone should push us out to invest in the lives of others it means a willingness to suffer we know that suffering will be part of our lives we follow the suffering servant we live in a fallen world but it means if you embody this kind of love you need to recognize that it's costly I think about the fact that some of the people you love will leave you. Some of the people you love will reject you. I think about the fact that Christ was rejected and left by those he loved. Think about Judas, spent so much time with him, shared meals with him, and then he betrayed him for some silver coins. If you love people like Christ, you will be hurt. People will let you down. That's just part of the package of what it means to follow Jesus. And so it means that recognizing the cost. I wonder whether sometimes we don't live in this manner because we haven't realized that to love people like Christ does involves a cost. So I want to encourage you to embody the aroma of Christ, to smell like Christ, to smell like Christ on the cross. The cross frees us to look outwards. It says our fundamental needs have been met. We've experienced the Father's love. We've been adopted into his family. And so we can now look to others' interests. We can look to be a blessing to those around us. We receive a love that cannot be kept to ourselves. It must push us outwards. So allow the, see the beauty of the cross and allow Christ's beauty to become embodied in your life. And thirdly, don't overlook the victory of the cross. Don't overlook the victory of the cross. You have to see that this, this, this cross, this crucifixion may look like a defeat, but it's actually a victory. And look at verse 12 when he says... Uh, I will, verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. You get an image of Christ as like a, a conquering hero who's just dividing the spoils of victory, that he's coming in, celebrating his victory. See the way in verse 11 he says, See the satisfied servant. Um, Uh, The satisfied saviour surveying his victory says he shall see and be satisfied. After Christ has died, he has the sense of satisfaction of a job well done, that he has accounted many with his righteousness. He's completed the mission that the father's given him. Don't allow the disfigured figure on the cross to fool you. Yes, he becomes a victim. Yes, he experiences oppression. But you must see that this is the victorious, conquering hero of history. See that the cross is fundamentally a victory. And there's something of the now and not yet about Christ's victory on the cross. The cross is fundamentally the defeat of death. That Christ's death is the beginning of the resurrection. That he, after three days, as he's resurrected, it's the beginning, uh, Corinthians he describes him, Paul describes it as the first fruits. It's like Christ's resurrection is, is the beginning of a harvest and one day we'll see the rest of the harvest come in as we experience that same sure and certain hope of resurrection. We're saying is on the cross, Christ defeated death and one day we will see the reality as we are all resurrected with Christ. It means that death need not loom over our lives, that we need not live with a fear of death because we have the promise of resurrection. We have a promise that death is on its way out. Think about how Christ defeated sin on the cross. Christ took all the sin of humankind on himself on the cross so that one day the power of sin will be, I mean, the power of sin has been broken in your life already, But one day we'll be in a place where there is no sin. We will see the restoration of the world. When Christ comes back to judge the living and the dead, he will bring about his full dominion so that we will live in a world where there's work without ego, where there's relationships without sin, where there's community without outsiders. We will see a fundamentally restored world. Christ defeats sin on the cross. He's defeated sin in your life. You're no longer controlled by it. And actually he's going to one day bring a complete destruction and elimination of sin for all those who believe in him, who will be resurrected with him. Hallelujah. And so live in light of this victory. Walk with the confidence of one, one of those who know that victory is coming. 
being a Christian at times will mean that you take the lower place in this life, that people will scorn you, that you might experience something of a minority status in this life. But you need to know that the victorious king is coming. And when he comes back, he will be vindicated and he will vindicate his people. So you can walk with a sense of confidence that whatever you experience in this life is just temporary, that the victory is assured and is coming. It means you can live in light of the finished work of Christ, that when Christ said it is finished on the cross, so there's nothing more you need to do to justify yourself, nothing more you need to do to, um, to justify that victory in your life. And it means to live in the not yet of Christ's victory, to know that in the meantime, as we wait for his victory, we fight hard. We fight against sin in our own lives. We seek to live out the fact that Christ has destroyed sin in our lives. And we seek to proclaim this message of peace and healing to a lost and broken world until our dying day. I want you to see also that it's a vi- see the victor's great reward. Christ is the victor in this passage and his reward is the people of God. It says, verse 10, he shall see his offspring. It's describing spiritual descendants. Verse 12 could be translated. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many in the ESV. But I read a few commentators who'd say it could be understood as, I will allot him to him the many. As in, I have allotted to him a people of God as his reward in victory. What it says is the great victorious conquering hero will be rewarded with many who will be counted righteous, many who follow him. The great goal of Christ's work on the cross is to establish the people of God. So when we gather together in worship, when we um, proclaim his news, in one sense we are celebrating his victory because we are the reward that Christ has received. We are his prize. You must hear that this victory will also be shocking. A day will, is coming when the world will see Christ and be astonished by him. Right at the beginning of the passage, almost like Isaiah needs us to know this before we hear the rest, he describes how, in verse 14, as many were astonished at you, he's talking about their astonishment of seeing the suffering on the, cry, or on the cross, so he shall sprinkle many nations. That word sprinkle can also be translated startle. He's saying the same astonishment that you had when you saw Christ on the cross, you saw his suffering, is something like the astonishment the world will have when they see the victorious risen king coming in power to judge the living and the dead. He talks about kings being silenced. The great elite of the world will be struck dumb will have a kind of silent awe as they see the living God and they recognise, presumably, the error of what they've done, that they've rejected him, the one who is the great victorious king of history. And as he does that, we see in verse 13, he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As some are struck dumb, dumb and silenced by the Christ, others will say, this is exactly what I expected, and will be worshipping Christ. The saints will be gathered and will be worshipping Christ as he arrives and comes in. And so really I want to say there are two responses to the cross, and I'm particularly speaking to you if you're not a Christian. There'll be those who understand the cross, who recognise their own sin, the reality that they deserve God's judgement. And yet they see the invitation of the cross. They see the love of Christ. They see that because of Christ's death, they have been invited in to experience reconciliation with God, to experience eternity with God, and that they will be counted among the many who come worshipping and exalting Christ as he comes back. Then there's those who will reject him, who remain under his wrath. You must see the implicit warning in the cross here. See Christ's anguish as he experiences separation from the Father. See that as a glimpse in the reality of hell. See the crushing and the punishment that Christ receives. And know the reality that Christ will have the last word, that if you reject him in this life, that's n- that Christ will have the last word. Unless you turn and receive Christ's offer of forgiveness, so a punishment and separation awaits you. And so there's really an invitation to respond here. Will you be counted among those who scoff and scorn at Christ, but will ultimately regret it on the last day? Or will you respond to Christ and worship him? Will you recognise who he is and respond to his invitation to receive his love and to become a worshipper of Christ? If you're not a Christian, I encourage you to, to, to make the step, even today, to turn around, to give your life to Christ. To, to repent of rejecting him and to receive him into your life, to receive his offer of forgiveness 
and the, and the assurance that he loves you and that you'll be with him for eternity. I'll leave that aside for a moment. But if you are a Christian, I just want to encourage you with a few concluding thoughts. Don't overlook the cross. Allow it to shape every part of your life. Let it transform you from the inside. Let the knowledge of his sonship, let the knowledge of the fact that you have peace with God, let Christ's finished work speak to your insecurity, speak to your sin, speak to the reality of your life and bring you to a place of running towards the Father. Marvel at the beauty of the cross. See the beauty of Christ and seek to emulate that same beauty in your life. Seek to live in a posture of sacrificial love. But ultimately... (laughs) See the victorious Christ on the cross. See that this is the great, victorious, conquering hero of history and respond to him in an intended way. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. The right response to the cross is worship. Worship the beautiful Christ. Worship his, his, the one who is willing to sacrifice his life for us. Worship him for all his purity and holiness. And come and give thanks that we have been included in his family. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we want to come to you again now and just give thanks for the wonderful cross. For the wonder of your sacrifice for us. For your beauty. For your purity. For your holiness, Lord. We're so grateful for your willingness to die for us. So grateful, Father, that you would send your son for us. So grateful, son, that you would experience the crushing of the Lord that you shed your blood for us that you died for us Lord we want to worship you and give you glory this morning I want to thank you that the cross looms large over our lives (laughs) that we are covered by the blood of the lamb (laughs) and that you've come to make your home in each one of us come by your spirit to transform our hearts that we've experienced the peace with you and we experience the healing of the cross that you're restoring our hearts that you're reshaping us to look like you lord we want to walk like you we want to embody this same sacrificial love we want to pour ourselves out just as you were poured out for us so we say come lord jesus fill us with your holy spirit come and lift our eyes help us to see the beauty of the cross again come and help us to overcome selfishness to overcome sin and to walk in obedience to you to walk as suffering servants laying down our lives for you and we're so grateful for the cross so grateful for your blood come and fill us with your spirit and help us to worship you now amen